Thank you very much, Attorney General. Uh, we will now, uh, I thank the, every witness in the second panel for their uh, passionate testimony. Uh, I'm going to remind the members that Committee Rule 3D imposes a five-minute limit on questions. The chair will now recognize members for any questions they may wish to ask of the second panel. I will start by recognizing myself for five minutes. Uh, Honorable uh, Chirhuri, um, Honorable Ambassador, you spoke of the issues that arise because of the fact that tribes do not have, in essence, even when they have criminal jurisdiction, um, that they don't have full criminal jurisdiction. There are limitations on that jurisdiction, both in terms of the sentences that may be imposed, as well as the individuals against whom uh, a tribe may prosecute. Can you elaborate a bit on, on why that makes it difficult to protect your people on tribal lands and why it might be good to address that as we address a public safety package for Indian country. Absolutely, and thank you, Madam Chair, and I very much appreciated the witness testimony today, all of whom have called for action by Congress. Uh, some of the limitations that I spoke of um, address sentencing limitations as well as jurisdictional limitations. And one of the main sources from it was another judicial usurpation of congressional power back in 1978, which called into question the capacity of tribal nations to prosecute properly criminal acts in Indian country. And that was a surprise to nations such as the Muscogee Creek Nation, whose roots of criminal justice systems uh, existed before statehood of not just Oklahoma, but also Alabama and Georgia. But that case itself uh, restricted jurisdiction to prosecute bad guys in Indian country, which we fought for in Indian countries universally fought for ever since. But since then, in trying to restore some of that jurisdiction, Congress has taken a very measured approach that has resulted in a bipartisan conclusion that rest more restoration of tribal authority is better. Some part of that measured approach included slowly ramping up sentencing authority of tribal nations, starting with a limit of one year, then later through the Tribal and Law and Order Act, amping it up to three years, all of which was coupled with a robust due process protections for any defendants within Indian country. At each stage of the way throughout this trend of Congress empowering tribal nations, we've heard nothing but good results. We haven't heard the sky is falling result of bad actions coming from tribal court prosecutions. This is especially important to me. I had, in a previous life, served as Chief Justice of the Muscogee Creek Nation, and I can speak to the capacity of tribal nations. So sentencing limitations need to be addressed in Indian country, jurisdictional limitations. If we really want to keep people safe, whether they're native or non-native in Indian country, we have to empower local decision makers on the ground and the governments who have the greatest interest in pr protecting people. Thank you. That should appeal to both sides of the aisle. Thank, Thank you very you. much, Ambassador. Uh, I now wanted to turn to Chairwoman Gobin. I think your testimony about the importance of or the implications that you need to be able to protect your children is really key. And I thought that uh, we heard that throughout, that theme throughout uh, the testimony today. Uh, and can you uh, elaborate a bit more on what it means uh, as a tribal leader to know that you might be restricted from being able to respond um, to those cases where the children on your reservation, the children of your community uh, are being 
uh, abused uh, and you cannot protect them. You cannot prosecute those crimes. Okay, so this started out with the, the VAWA. Um, when we first started to uh, be able to prosecute non-tribals that were um, committing crimes against our women, some of the children that were in the room that actually got hurt really bad, they got beat during this time, there was no way to prosecute the crime against the child. And those children have, have um, you know, suffered great, a great deal, not only the verbal and the, um, but, but physical abuse that was horrific, that they didn't get justice on having their portion of the crime um, go through a court system. It was devastating to the community. Some of these children are, you know, really suffering. They, they have to have that um, mental health you know, counseling, and, but it's not right that those crimes never got to be going through the, the system. So it's that, a, you know. Thank you very much. I did want to also ask the president, uh, Kevin Keller of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe, about the comparison of the funds available at the state level as, to the tribal level, but I have run out of, of time. We are uh, going to ask the witnesses to respond to written questions, and I will submit my written questions so that we may move on. Uh, I now recognize uh, Ranking Member Obernolte. Thank you to all our witnesses. It's been a very informative hearing so far. Mr. Chad Hurry, I'll start with a question for you. So uh, I want to thank you for coming to the table with a concrete solution. You've urged Congress to act, uh, and I respect uh, the position you've taken. Um, are all of the five tribes of Oklahoma unified in uh, their opinion of what Congress should do in this, in this situation? Um, my guess is in any room full of uh, tribal leaders, there are going to be different approaches to different problems. But when we talk about consensus, one of the themes we've heard repeatedly today is that this is an Indian country issue. We are, you know, always happy to work with our sibling nations and we're working towards solutions. But this is an issue that uh, reaches far beyond Oklahoma. So I think even our Cherokee colleague mentioned the need for a thoughtful approach and we respect the, the fact that she's calling for action, that Cherokee Nation's calling for action. But respectfully, uh, one of the points that many of our colleagues raised is that the solutions are not new. They were uh, vetted extensively by the Indian Law and Order Commission over 10 years ago, and the solutions are clear. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that's some of the challenges that we face here, right? Because there are, uh, because there are over 500 federally recognized tribes, there's probably going to be 500 different opinions of exactly what Congress ought to do, uh, including what is probably the minority viewpoint, but including the viewpoint that, that PL280 uh, you know, it's not such a bad thing and that maybe that should be expanded. So, which is something I, I know that you would vehemently disagree with. So how are we in Congress to determine what the right solution is, you know, given the fact that we probably want to apply it equally across the country? Uh, thank you, sir. Excellent question. So I was very thankful to hear the chairwoman from Tulalip sound the alarm as to why tribal nations and public law, law 280 states 
have a deep interest in limiting the, the bad impacts of Castro Huerta. So when you talk about consensus, consensus doesn't equal unanimity. It, and uh, it's important to hear certainly from all of Indian country, but if Congress ever waited to act for every tribal nation to sign on board with every proposal, Congress would never be able to uphold its treaty and trust responsibilities. So respectfully, we appreciate the dialogue from today to show the vast majority of sentiment in Indian country and urge Congress to consider appropriate action to uphold its responsibilities. Uh, thank you for the testimony. Thank you, sir. Uh, Ms. Gobin, I, I'd like to follow up on the chair's question because I'm very interested in uh, the problems that you uh, that you have illustrated with PL280 and uh, the situations where the, the perpetrators of crimes against Indian were not Indians were not brought to justice as a result of that. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, the situation you were discussing with the chair, uh, where, where children crimes were committed against children? The evidence was there, but but those crimes were not prosecuted. Yes. So that was where the, you have the two jurisdictions, you have the state and the feds, and neither one would um, take up the cases. And we have several that were on the books that did not get prosecuted. And we had conversations with, well, trying to get the state to do it, but also with the feds. Okay, so why would, I mean, it, I, I think, we, we, you know, opinions may differ about who has jurisdiction and who's going to do the prosecution, but, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that anyone would say crimes that have been committed against children, we have the evidence, and that's okay. So, you know, how, how, did, how did these cases fall through the cracks? Well, I think with the state, um, they may have uh, difficulty working with the tribes, and the feds, you know, we would have thought that we could have moved those cases forward, but then they sit forever, and then we've had conversations on why aren't you taking this? So we did have um, those conversations and we're hoping to um, move them forward in a faster way. But yeah, children were hurt and it, there's, a, there's a bias at the state. They don't want to take tribal cases. Uh, wow, that's, uh, that, that's stunning to hear that. I think that no matter what your opinion of uh, Huerta is, uh, we should all be unified in the... Uh, in the desire to bring justice, uh, you know, for the victims of these crimes. So I uh, thank you for your testimony. I yield back, Madam Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your questions. Um, the Chair will now recognize uh, the gentleperson from the state of New Mexico, Representative Stansbury. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. And I want to start by saying thank you to all of our tribal leaders and welcoming you to our committee and to Washington, D.C. It's great to see so many old friends and wonderful to have you here. And thank you to Chairwoman Ledger Fernandez and our ranking member for this important hearing. I want to start with my position on this issue, which is that I believe that this decision by the majority of our Supreme Court is a direct affront to tribal sovereignty and to tribal nationhood and upends, of course, generations of settled law in the U.S. tribal relationship, hundreds of treaties, and is an affront to our Constitution in which we recognize tribal sovereignty as inherent to our tribal nations. And so I strongly believe that we need to support the tribal nations who would like to see a legislative fix to this um, decision. But my concern 
And the question I want to direct to our tribal leaders who are here today and to those who are listening across our tribal nations in the U.S. is how do we build a process at the congressional level to get to some form of consensus about the legislative path? I know some of the previous questions have touched on this. I served on a panel just last week with a couple of dozen tribal leaders um, asking the question, what should the legislative fix look like? And received at least six different answers based on six different legal theories and bases. Um, you know, I've heard more expansive uh, responses that would like to overhaul and fix previous um, uh, case law and statutory problems with how um, justice systems are supported in our tribal nations. Um, I've seen more narrow uh, fixes. And so my question for our panelists today is really a process question more than a substance question, which is, is there a need to seek a immediate fix that's um, reaffirms McGirt or um, addresses a fatal flaw before the end of this Congress while we engage in a much more robust consultation process uh, with the executive branch so that we can hear from all of our tribal nations um, and, and sort of your thoughts about how we build a reasonable consensus on a legislative path forward. And I think if it's okay, Madam Chair, just going in the order of the witnesses' testimony, um, starting with our honorable ambassador from Muscogee Creek. Does that work for you, Madam Chair? Uh, if, if that does. Um, uh, thank you so much, Chair, I mean, uh, Congresswoman Stansbury. Always good to see you. So uh, in the interest of time, I will say that there is no legislative language that we've put forward as a nation. However, there are proposals that we support that are intended to generate meaningful discussion to have Congress signal its intent to uphold its responsibilities in short order. We are mindful of the potential for mischief and erroneous misapplication of the underlying rationale of Castro Huerta in cases that go beyond public safety. Uh, most importantly, and, and coming around the, the horizon, the Supreme Court set to hear arguments in the Brackeen case, which if the Supreme Court wrongly extends the rationale uh, under Castro Huerta could be devastating for native children throughout the country. So we want Congress to act quickly. In terms of legislative proposals that we would suggest or support, we not only support uh, clarification in the public safety context, but to be clear, we also support a robust effort collectively to go after bad guys. And going after bad guys requires addressing sentencing limitations, jurisdictional limitations, and so forth. So we do believe action is needed now, and we support something that addresses things collectively. We don't call it a fix. We call, we call it strengthening public safety issues in Indian country. Thank you so much for the question. Thank you so much. And mindful that uh, I actually have run out of time here with this. Um, I'm going to submit this, Madam Chairwoman, as a question for the record to all of our witnesses. And as I said, um, I would love to hear from tribal nations. We would love to hear from tribal nations across the country about how to build that consensus process. And the question about acting expediently before the end of this Congress 
and whether it's a both and doing something now as well as doing something more extensive. Finally, I just want to say that we are working very hard to get a real budget passed. We know there's going to be a short-term CR. We are hearing the need to get more resources to support tribal courts, to beef up DOJ and BIA law enforcement. And we know that this is a huge immediate need across Indian country. We stand with you and we will be working very closely with the tribal nations to address this issue. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. Thank you, Representative Stansbury, for your questions and the answers. The chair will now recognize the gentleperson, Representative Rosendale. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, Attorney General Hill mentioned uh, some of this in her testimony, but I'd like to hear more from you, Ambassador Chattery, and A.G. Hill on the plans both your tribal nations have put in place to handle an increased caseload in your tribal courts pre- and post-McGirt. We'll start with you. You're right here. Yes, sir. And uh, as I said before, we have our Attorney General, General uh, Jerry Wisner, who uh, works on the day-to-day -day implementation of McGirt and any specific details she can follow up in the record with written uh, testimony or here today if you so choose. But we have, like Cherokee Nation, amped up our budget from day one at Muscogee Creek Nation. Uh, Chief Hill formed a commission to look at all aspects of McGirt. From that commission, we uh, increased our, our social services uh, providers, our prosecutors, our judges. We now have double the number of judges that we ever had uh, servicing all the caseload that is coming through our system. We have more law enforcement on the ground and prosecutors. The numbers, I don't, uh, our budget isn't as big as Cherokee Nation's, but our ramp up is probably proportionate, uh, if not greater, since we were the very first nation to start implementing McGirt. And A.G. Hill, would you have any further yes, comments? Um, yeah, I, I think just briefly, you know, that's, that $40 million represents a lot of different things. So from having one part-time criminal prosecutor who also handled the whole juvenile docket, which is one person could handle it. Now I have seven full-time prosecutors. That's all they do. Um, we opened up additional locations um, in Muskogee and in Jay, which are local areas and are still looking to expand our district court system further, hired additional court judges, hired additional members of the marshal service, uh, so basically, every part of our criminal justice system had to expand and grow in, in every in every way. Um, that's just been an ongoing explosion in the criminal justice system. And one of the huge things I think that's worth mentioning is the detention budget. Um, all of these people who are receiving these sentences have to serve that sentence somewhere. And those costs um, have really been skyrocketing. And I know that that and also juvenile detention has been a huge issue for all of the tribes in Oklahoma who are mm -hmm. affected by McGirt. Right while I have you still speaking, um, A.G. Hill, can you also speak to how these plans have or have not changed after Castro Huerta was decided? You know, Castro Huerta did not, um, you know, the way that we, we looked at it, it didn't affect tribal jurisdiction. So it didn't do anything to limit the, the number of cases coming directly to us. What it could limit is the number of cases coming to us under VAWA because the Oklahoma Attorney General sent out a letter to some of the the prosecutors in Oklahoma saying, you know, you need to be referring these cases now to the state. Um, that hasn't stopped those cases from coming to us. We're still seeing a pretty robust number of cases coming in from, um, from Indian country that are non-Indian crimes against Indians. 
So we haven't really seen a real big dip yet in that caseload. So we're we're still proceeding with our expansion plans um, as if nothing had changed with Castro Huerta. Because as a practical matter, from our jurisdictional standpoint, the tribe's jurisdiction, it really didn't. Okay, thank you. Um, I was traveling around Oklahoma, it just so happens, recently and met with several law enforcement agencies and, and was really pleased to hear about the cross-deputization and the collaboration that was taking uh, place between the tribal and non-tribal law enforcement agencies. It sounded really, really uh, positive. But I did find it troubling to, find, to hear about the different penalties that were imposed based upon tribal or non-tribal status and the location of the offense. So I don't know who's best suited, A.G. Hill, I'm thinking probably you. Could you expand on this for me and explain why it's so? And is there any plan to rectify or reconcile this difference? Well, I think there's some mythology that gets mixed into all of that. I've heard on multiple occasions that if you get a ticket in one jurisdiction, it's one cost. And if you get a ticket at Cherokee Nation, it's a different one. And I'll chase it down. And it's just not true. Uh, there's a lot of uh, local law enforcement that sort of have this mythology that it's, tickets are much more expensive. And part of this is to get not Indians to say, well, just go ahead and give me a ticket from the non-Indian court because it'll be cheaper, right? Um, even though this tribe has jurisdiction over them. And for, for the most part, our penalties are very consistent with what state penalties are. The only time that that's different is where our jurisdiction or our, our ability to assess that penalty is limited by federal law. So under the, the Indian Civil Rights Act, we simply cannot, for any crime, for one single crime, have a penalty longer than three years. And that there's nothing I can do about that from the tribal side. Yeah. Thank you, Madam Chair. I yield back. Thank you very much uh, for those questions and pointing out that distinction that I think that's part of the issue that we were raising earlier is the fact that we have, in essence, hobbled the ability of tribes to prosecute those crimes. And as we know, when, you know, when there isn't the fear of prosecution and serious uh, sentences, that then may lead to... Um, more reckless and criminal behavior. So thank you for sort of like that. our southern border. So we're dealing with our internal borders of the tribes right now, and love to focus on that exclusively at this uh, in this committee. So uh, I want to thank our our witnesses for their valuable testimony and the members for their questions. Now I would like to transition to our final panel of witnesses for today. Uh, once again, I'm going to remind non-administration witnesses that they are encouraged to participate in the witness diversity survey created by the Congressional Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Witnesses may refer to their hearing invitation materials for further information and our committee rules, oral statements are limited to five minutes, but you may submit a longer statement for the record if you choose. When you begin the on-screen timer, we'll begin counting down. We'll turn orange when you have one minute remaining. I recommend that members and witnesses join remotely, lock the timer on their screen. After your testimony is complete, please remember to mute yourself to avoid any inadvertent background noise. I will allow the entire panel to testify before we begin the question portion of the hearing. Uh, once again, we moved the hearing to 11 so we could we wanted to see if we could get through uh, the testimony before votes were called. We are hopeful we will be able to move through as much as possible before votes are called. Um, the chair will now recognize, if uh, we're ready, uh, will now recognize Ms. Mary Catherine Nagel, who is counsel for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. We're getting ready quickly. 